0: Visiting fellow and lecturer at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. And today, in this session, we're going to talk about making big changes to the Department of Defense because the department just can't seem to solve one of the most pressing national security issues of our time. How do we rapidly integrate new technology into defense capability routinely, efficiently, and faster than our adversaries? This is a huge topic with a lot of smart people thinking about it. My guest today, Steve Blank, is one of these smart people. Steve is kind of an OG Silicon Valley entrepreneur guy. He's been thinking and writing about innovation as a process, startup culture, defense development, many other things for a long time, starting with his days hanging missiles on fighters during the Vietnam War. Uh, Steve is responsible for huge programs like Lean Launchpad for startups, Hacking for Defense, and the new Gordian Knot Center at Stanford, among others. I encourage you to check out his website at steveblank.com for the full resume. It's quite impressive. He's an amazing guy. And he has a, quite a gift for distilling complex problems down into bite-sized pieces. So today, we're going to take one of those complex problems and see what we can do about it. And we're going to talk about restructuring the Department of Defense, the U.S. Department of Defense. Sounded possible, Maybe, but there is precedent. When I was putting this together, I was concerned that people who don't know what we're talking about already won't know what we're talking about. And so I wanted to make sure this conversation can be had among many areas of expertise inside defense and among people uh, from many different backgrounds. Uh, but it's a hard topic that's kind of obscure for many. So let me tell, start by telling you a, a short history of the military, the U.S. military, Uh, The U.S. Department of Defense and so forth. So the U.S. military is really, really good at destroying other militaries through warfare. Uh, From World War II onward, the U.S. has outmatched every other military on the planet, basically. But despite its major advantages, the U.S. military has stumbled on several occasions. And this incurred in large campaigns like Vietnam, but sometimes where the operation was modest, if still complex, like Operation Eagle Claw with infamous Desert One and Operation Urgent Fury in Grenada. In Vietnam, in many ways, the Air Force, the Navy, the Army and the Marines were each fighting separate wars. So getting the military to act with a single strategy and purpose was tough, even though they obviously they did interact um Air Force fighters dropping bombs for Army and Marine troops on the ground, etc. But at the larger level, difficult to coordinate and integrate effort. At this time in the history of the services, the heads of the services, the chiefs of staff of the various services, were part of the operational chain, chain of command, meaning they had a say over how operations were conducted in theater. So what that means is like the head of the Army is literally in charge of the army uh, deployed uh, in theater in Vietnam or elsewhere, uh, as well as the army that's back in the states and Europe at the same time, etc. Likewise, in later operations, uh, the Iranian hostage rescue attempt at, during Operation Eagle Claw and the invasion of Grenada with Urgent Fury, uh, this same sort of operational control by the services uh, led to a lot of service parochialism and issues with integration of effort while trying to conduct warfighting operations. So this inability of the services to work together jointly, if you will, made even small operations extremely complex to the point where the military was failing at things that it should not have failed at. In a lot of ways, these failures were seen as a result of organizational problems, meaning that the way the structure the way the the Department of Defense was organized, was hindering warfighting operations. That original structure, though it has changed over the years, but is basically oriented on domain-centric warfare. That is, the Army fights on the land domain, the Navy fights at sea, and the Air Force fights in the air. And that makes sense until fighting starts to cross domains because weapons from one domain can be very good at defeating targets in other domains. The easy, easiest example of this is air power helping ground forces win fights directly. And this came to be known as combined arms warfare with its history really beginning in World War II. Um but it didn't really become doctrine until the 1970s with the cooperation between the Army and Air Force to create the airland battle war fighting doctrine. Here's the, here's the problem though. That new doctrine could not affect who had authority over operations, though it explicitly required unity of command to be successful. So when airland battle doctrine goes to war in Grenada, it didn't really look like it was supposed to. We still had Marines fighting one war on the island while the Army right next to it was fighting another, and the Air Force and Navy were fighting yet another. Service chief parochialism and service parochialism was kind of getting in the way. The services became a liability operationally, not because they were bad people, but because the domain-focused force structure of the DoD and the services was no longer useful in the modern way that we fought wars at that time. So the services needed to integrate their efforts under a single command who could tell his Navy, Army, and Air Forces what to do. The U.S. Department of Defense essentially needed a joint force. Now, of course, I am greatly oversimplifying in favor of keeping this short, but in the early 80s, Congress, the President, and the DOD itself knew that something had to change, because if we have this many problems fighting in Grenada, what was a war against the Soviets in Europe going to look like? But Congress also knew that there was no way that the Department of Defense and the services would willingly make the dramatic changes that seem to be necessary. After all, changing a government organization as large as DOD is basically impossible, right? Not so, said Senator Goldwater and Congressman Nichols. In a very long and painful battle, Congress reorganized the Department of Defense into what it is today, a bureaucracy where the wars are fought by joint forces led by joint commanders like CENTCOM, INDOPACOM, UCOM, and where the service's role is to man, train, and equip those joint forces for use by the Joint Force Commander. This landmark legislation was the Goldwater-Nichols Defense Reorganization Act of 1986, and the changes it made caused all the militaries in the world to sit up and take note when this force had its rehearsal in Operation Just Cause in Panama in 1989 and its main event in Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm in 1991. But as great as these changes were, Congress didn't know what it didn't know, and a few wrinkles were left to rear their ugly heads 30 years later. The way that the services manned and trained the Joint Force had undergone many evolutions from the conscript force to an all-volunteer force, and through many training models, improvements to get the most out of those volunteers. But the way the services equipped the joint force has really resisted meaningful change since the early 1960s when Robert McNamara, as Secretary of Defense, imposed the PPBE process, which stands for Planning, Programming, Budgeting, and Execution. This is essentially the process the DOD has to follow to make sure that it's spending money on the right stuff and not wasting billions on developing new airplanes every year when we have a perfectly good airplane right now. Unfortunately, this worked all too well. Now it takes decades to develop almost anything, and almost everything that is being developed is obsolete almost as soon as it's fielded because the lead time was so long. DOD and Congress have recognized that PPPE is not good enough anymore, and Congress even established a PPE commission uh, in National Defense Authorization Act of 2022 to look for ways to improve that process. But the problem is a lot bigger than that. The world has changed. How militaries fight war has changed. We no longer expect to fight in a single theater at a time. We expect to fight a peer adversary across many theaters. Those theaters being like CENTCOM, PAYCOM, UCOM, etc. We expect to be fighting them all at once against potentially a single peer adversary. We also don't fight in one or two domains at once anymore. We now fight in all domains, integrating effects and shifting emphasis. And we've added a few domains too, not just air, land, and sea, They're now space and cyber, or maybe some might say information. And in some ways, those domains are even more important than the land and sea domains or the air domain. Technology advances now come at a frenetic pace led by small civilian companies rather than large defense contractors. And cooperation between commercial and government sectors, though it's always been important, but now the commercial sector is really leading the way rather than government leading the way. Our adversaries have figured this out faster than we have, and they are moving in this direction at warp speed. Civil-military integration and military capability development is proceeding at unprecedented rates in states like China, where government and civilian resources mix to create an agile and powerful system that builds better stuff faster. And the U.S. is still failing at simple things, just like in the 70s and 80s. But this time, it's failing at delivering decisive military advantage through technology rather than those joint operations. So big changes need to be on the table, or the DoD will forever be hacking its own systems to find workarounds to intractable capability development problems. Uh, Steve Blank and I and others are taking this on. So let's get into it and see how far we've gotten. steve about how he sees the problem he sees it in a series of big ideas
1: so brad i think the big idea that we've everybody's been talking about not just you and i but i think everybody is that we kind of have all felt that the dod isn't efficiently organized to do some of the things that needs to be done and i think like the proverbial folks the blind men trying to describe an elephant or a camel we've all been talking about the pbe or the you know uh, JATSE2 or, or you know, other pieces and why DIU and Mike Brown got shot in the head and and like why we kept, you know, cratering every innovation uh, initiative, the DOD starts, it always gets assumed. And and it's taken me a long, long time to understand what's been going on. And, and I think now I have, if not a unified field theory, at least a unified field hypothesis, seriously, to kind of describe all of this kind of succinctly. And it's, and it really hurt my head because, obviously, with three million people and, and tons of moving parts, the DoD—it's really easy to get sucked into, you know, the PBE and whether it's, you know, acquisition or is it mid-tier? Or what are we talking about? Look, we're doing a horrifically bad job of of, of getting external assets that are force multipliers, kind of to help us. Which wouldn't matter if China isn't doing this and running rings around us. And by the way, if we keep or at least I keep using China's the scale number of ships in the water in the last 10 or 15 years or the number of new aircraft, we can't even keep up with North Korea. They fielded four generations of IRBMs and ICBMs in the last seven years, and we might have the Sentinel Minuteman replacement in another decade. Um, And and by the way, North Korea has a gross national product of less than Facebook. So somebody should be asking a set of questions in Congress about what is it institutionally that, that is just holding us back from getting the rest of the nation engaged at scale in helping us compete? And my conclusion is it's just the design of the organization. One of the big
0: things that keeps coming up in this conversation is the fact that the Department of Defense no longer has a monopoly on developing the technology for military applications. And this is where Steve starts to generate his big ideas
1: Number one, and it's a huge idea, is that for the first time ever, our national security is dependent on commercial technology. What? Well, think about it. Drones, AI, machine learning, autonomy, biotech, cyber, semiconductors, quantum, high-performance computing, commercial access to space, the cloud, even comm, optical, and SIGIN satellites, biotech, cyber, are all being driven by commercial vendors as, as well as you know the assets we have internally. And as we're seeing in Ukraine, they're changing the balance of power. DOD labs, the FFR, federally funded research centers and primes, no longer exclusively own most of the technologies we need to deter and win a war. They're not only being driven by commercial Western firms, there's an equal number of them in China as in the West. And, and, and the last piece of this first argument is China has figured out how to do something called civil military fusion since 2015 to couple disruptive commercial technologies for its national security needs.
0: But it's not just about technology. What Steve notes is that moving money efficiently in the right quantities to invest in the right technology also is critical to developing defense capability.
1: The second big idea is in 2022, the U.S. private capital, venture capital, private equity, et cetera, invested $600 billion in new ventures. And very little of it was aligned with the national interest. In the meantime, China has tapped into $900 billion of private capital um, called guidance funds and securitization that is taking public some of these national assets to fund their new shipyards, new aircraft, new avionics. But at the same time in the U.S., private capital and venture capital and startups have spent 50 years institutionalizing how to do rapid delivery of disruptive innovation that could move with speed and urgency that the DOD actually requires.
0: And here, I don't think Steve is suggesting that the Department of Defense become a venture capital firm, but he's pointing out something really important, and that is that the legacy system of the Department of Defense cannot move money where it needs to be, uh, and the internal innovation mechanisms or development mechanisms are archaic for our time and space, And, and that gets to his last big idea.
1: And the last part is the DOD, r and ANS, and the services R&D as well, are focused on incumbent suppliers and legacy systems. And while they kind of throw stuff against the wall on their line items in the NDAA, you know, in external innovation activities are designed to appear like progress, but they really don't have budget or authority. And so what the DOD is actually doing is innovation theater rather than innovation. So a good example of that is there's over 100 DoD incubators and accelerators and multiple NDA innovation line items without a plan, without leadership, without budget or authority to deploy at scale. Um, and the last piece is DoD innovation initiatives and organizations almost never scale. They're all eventually co-opted to fit into existing organizations where innovation dies, whether it was Army Rapid Equipping Force, JIDA, JAKE, DIU, they all lost. And the problem was they're trying to do innovation inside of execution organizations where innovation always gets assumed and the incumbents always win.
0: One of the common targets for improvement in the Department of Defense is the planning, programming, budgeting, and execution process commonly referred to as PPBE. Uh, In fact, there is a commission established in the National Defense Authorization Act of 2022 to look at ways to improve PPBE. But the PPBE is probably the wrong target, as Steve suggests.
1: And then our favorite whipping boy, the PPE, is just simply structurally incapable for rapid acquisition of new systems and technology at scale.
0: And I don't think anyone is suggesting that PPBE reform is bad. It certainly is a good thing. However, the problem is much larger than that. The PPBE process is simply symptomatic of a larger series of systemic failures that prevents the DOD from doing what it wants to do to innovate and prepare for warfare in the future. And so enter the idea for new Goldwater Nichols for systemic change. But the first thing we have to kind of do is understand where the original Goldwater Nichols came from and what exactly it was trying to do and what were some of the obstacles in place against it.
1: So this starts way back at trying to understand what happened with Goldwater-Nichols. That is, for most of your listeners, understand that in 1986, Congress basically mandated a reorganization of the DOD. And and historically, the Department of Defense could reorganize one of three ways. It could do it internally, obviously, by, by setting up its own orgs and tearing them down, or the president through uh, executive th- directives could do that, or Or every once in a while, like before 1986, the last major reorg was like the first one in 200 years, which is the National Security Act of 1947 and amended by 1949, when we essentially created the Department of Defense. For for since the 1780s, the U.S. had a Department of War, which was the Army, and the Department of Navy, which was the Navy and, and the Marines part of the Navy, but that was it. And we try to do some kind of joint stuff in World War II and kind of, you know, under a Supreme Commander managed to do that, but not as a design. And basically, you know, the, the National Defense Act of 47 basically created what we now call the Department of Defense. That so, No, there's not a Department of War, Department of Army. We're all kind of under the same umbrella. But it was, in fact, in 1986 when Congress kind of looked back at the the things that happened, uh, which are basically two decades of poor battlefield performance uh, in the Vietnam War, where the services fought the war as independent entities. In nineteen eighty, 1997, just as the war ended, we f- had a disaster in failing to rescue the crew of the SS Migras. There was a t- public debacle of the Iranian uh, hostage uh, um, rescue in 1980. And then um, Lebanon peacekeeping in 82 to 83, and then uh, poorly coordinated invasion of Granada. And the, the Congress finally said, look, you know, it's not like we got bad people or bad orgs. It's just that we're not organized well internally. Um, and remember back then, we were in the middle of a great power competition, but this time with the Soviet Union. And, and I'm just setting this up, but to say this inability to coherently execute even the simplest joint operations raised questions of how we could fight and prevail in a larger war. And, and, and so what happened was there were almost, Four years of hearings, starting with uh, General Jones, who admitted that, uh, you know, we're not organized. To, uh, we don't, in fact, his quote to the House Armed Services Committee is, "We don't have an adequate organizational structure today." But his first concern was actually the organization of Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, but eventually, over a couple of years of hearings, and uh, President Reagan stood up the Packard Commission, and Congress getting involved we realized that what we had with the Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force was functional organizations, just as you pointed out, but that we could better organize if we created what today in a organizational structure we call a matrix organization. You leave the functions as they exist, but in fact, you jointly put them together in specific organizations, which we now call combatant commands. And today we have 11 of them, both geographic commands and functional commands. And and that was the major reorganization and. Um, by Congress. Now, a couple of other reforms happened. It affirmed civilian control of the military by, by codifying that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is outside the chain of command, but um, it also strengthened the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and created the vice chairman and the staff, um, and also required uh, uh, senior officers to uh, to serve in a joint command before they could be promoted. But here's the big idea, and this is a This will help us understand what we need to do today. Goldwater-Nichols reorganized existing internal DOD assets. It's a big idea. It didn't, didn't reach outside of the DOD. It says we got all the right people. We're just not organized correctly. And it recognized that the world had changed and continuing to operate them in silos were inefficient. But it, it took, and by the way, they weren't organized this way by some law of physics. They were separated because people put power, prestige, and identification with a culture around the service before national interest. Now, of course, they wouldn't have explained it that way. They would have said, no, this is the most efficient way. You're going to destroy our military capabilities to have joined organizations. And it turned out that really wasn't, if you dug deep, wasn't really the reason. But it took an outside agency, in this case, Congress, to effect change. And by the way, if your listeners want to hear all the detail about this, there's a great book called Victory on the Potomac. That's really an insider's account from a Senate staffer about how the sausage got made. Um, And you come away amazed that today that we something we take for granted ever got passed.
0: And this is a key insight, the fact that something so difficult that was so transformative was actually done. And now we take it for granted. This is in my opinion, how we have to look at this going forward when we start talking about dusting off the Goldwater Nichols concept and reforming the Department of Defense to develop capability as we go forward in the modern era. But let's be clear, it just isn't that easy. There's a lot of things that block us. And I asked Steve about what he thought some of these uh obstacles might be.
1: You know, if, if you're a pilot, the last thing you want to do is be a drone pilot, right? You want to fly an F-35 or you want to fly the B21 or 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 if you're a, a you know navy officer god your career is like if you're a surface ship officer you want to be in charge of a, a, a aircraft carrier or a striker. you don't want to be like in charge of a thousand you know like logistics ships autonomously going across the pacific so one is a cultural thing so um, and and by the way It's not dumb and it's not wrong, but it just is, is people get tied to what a feeling of success feels like. Um, But number two is um, all the existing incumbent primes don't have the skill sets currently to build this. And not only don't they have the skill sets, I'll contend it's probably the least profitable thing for them to build. If I've invested in shipyards to build $14 billion carriers. And now you're telling me I need to build autonomous resupply ships for less than a million dollars each. I can't even write a proposal for that, let alone cut sheet metal for that. I just don't have the, the shipyards of the 21st century, and neither does anybody right now to do that. I'm just afraid that our adversaries do because they don't have that legacy that we do. Um, and, and so it's quite possible. And again, I am never suggesting we get rid of the assets we have. Everything I'm talking about would be a complement to the things we have. We'll always need carriers. We'll always need surface ships. We'll always need manned aircraft. But but the force multipliers to be able to use the technology that's already here to actually do the simple things that, are, that put people in harm's way or, or expensive assets in harm's way that we know have been put in harm's way. That we could actually immensely complicate an adversary's targeting problems. So, um, and actually help us uh, actually accomplish a mission with new operational concepts that that were just unimaginable like a couple of years ago. I mean, it's it's pretty simple to imagine what we're seeing in the Ukraine that air defense systems will actually be a per- permanent uh, overhead of uh, counter drones flying over you know uh, protected areas. I mean, it doesn't take much imagination. It Doesn't take much imagination to know. Most missions that we think about manned aircraft will be done by unmanned aircraft, and very exquisite things will be done with with manned stuff. Maybe with again autonomous wingmen. It's not hard to imagine that. Gee, if you want to actually execute the Marines EABO strategy, you got to worry about where are they getting resupply or even supply for ammunition and food across you know ten thousand miles of the Pacific, plus the if the preposition stuff has been hit. Well, you know our supply ships are limited, and they have bullseyes painted on top of them. Maybe semi-submersibles at at scale, we're just assuming some percentage get attrited, actually get that stuff to the beaches that they need to be. Um, Again, you could have a different set of imagination if that's what you're focused on, and that you're using non-traditional people to actually think imaginatively in a way we haven't. The DoD point to make never would have invented Starlink. You know, never would have invented SpaceX. In fact, if you know the history, the Air Force just basically stiff armed them for a decade. Well, ULA is good enough. That's our national security launch provider. When someone was banging on the door of like, no, we got something of fractional the cost, and and we we're able to launch much more often. Um, so that's the argument I would make, is that I just think Congress forcing a reorganization would actually free up the best and the brightest and the most creative people we have already have inside the DOD to be able to think about how to use assets they never even know they they had. And this is the, makes the case for an organizational redesign of the DOD into what's called an ambidextrous organization, one where we use internal and external resources, where the innovation and execution organizations are interdependent. Um, you know, it's going to take Congress to affect change at this scale. So that's the the long part. The result is that DOD has been unwilling and unable to adopt and adapt new models of systems and new operational concepts, attributable systems, autonomous systems, swarms, that threaten legacy systems, that threaten incumbent vendors or organizations and cultures.
0: What I see is that Congress is very timid when it comes to Making changes to DOD, uh, which and very cautious. And so, when I see things like the PPBE Commission that got passed in the National Defense Authorization Act 2022, i I was working with Senator King's office at that time, and we tried to get some things into that commission. Well, first off, tried to make our own commission to research doing a Goldwater-Nichols for. Capability development, essentially, what you're talking about. Start with a commission because you can't just pass something like that. Uh, Goldwater-Nichols started with Packard Commission, as you mentioned, and so forth. Um, the, but they wouldn't. The, the Senate Armed Services Committee couldn't make that leap, so we tried to put some stuff in the PPBE Commission that was already basically accepted by the uh, Armed Services Committee and to go into the NDAA 2022, but it got stripped out at the last minute because people think that the DOD can fix the problem on their own if we just help them, give them some recommendations on fixing PPBE.
1: So I, I, you know, I've spent enough time looking at large organizations to realize that there are organizations designed to execute known processes with known resources, with known systems and known timeframes. And and I think everybody or at least your listeners understand that PBE was the McNamara era process that got started, but you should remember why it got started, which was in the 1950s, post-World War II, there was a whole new set of technologies, jet engines, nuclear power, you know, um, a whole new set of technologies that both the Navy and the Air Force and even the Army decided to jump on. And, and we built three generations of manned bombers, B-36, 47, 52. Um, we created the nuclear Navy, attack subs, and and uh, submarine-launched ballistic missiles. uh Air Force built a Century series of fighter planes, you know, F-1, everything from F-100, 102, 104, 105. Um, we built, uh, what, two generations of carriers, so I think the Farstels and the Midways, um, all within a decade. I mean, within a decade. So remember, the setup for for the PBE is McNamara comes in, who was basically the CFO of Ford. He had been president for six months. But basically, he spent his, his time as a as a financial guy and an accountant in in, in the Air Force and in World War II responsible for statistical control comes in and says, well, wait a minute, we've never thought about what we now call that is maintenance and operations and all this cost of all these systems we've we've built to kind of catch up or beat the Soviet Union. And, oh, we also built, you know, Atlas and we're building the minimum ICBMs. We had a whole ICBM race and we had whole satellite programs of uh, classified overhead stuff starting with Corona and SIG and stuff and whatever, all starting in the 50s. And he says this stuff is out of control, you know, like, wait a minute, who's going to pay for all the maintenance? and, And these things are being obsoleted every three years. We need a rational process. And that was the idea about the PBE. It was, in fact, a reaction to the uninhibited and uncontrolled innovation cycle where each service got to build, without any coordination, their own series of weapon systems. That's what we put in place and we're still living with. The problem is, of course, by the time McNamara came in, he said essentially, look, it's now 1962. By the time he got control of this thing, we could kind of predict technology and we kind of could pr- pr- predict the threat. It's the Soviet Union. They were living with the same basic physics we are. We do an offset strategy. They do one, et cetera, et cetera. So why do we get this stuff under control? Point is that the world has changed now, but we still have the same rigid you know planning programming budgeting and execution system that made sense when you could predict threats and could predict technology to manage them over 30 years think about this you're going to keep an iphone for 30 years you're going to keep no seriously you're going to keep your computer for 30 years well most of our equipment in the in the military are now basically computers with hardware wrapped around it and 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 it's hard to and i'm not I'm not being glib about the complicated hardware wrapped around them, but we would never imagine thinking about keeping computers and whatever. But that whole notion of the PPE and the whole notion of that system about 30-year life cycles and planning and budgeting, and we could think about the future, and we have three years to to have all the committees and the JCDIS you know, meet in the budgeting committee. For some of that, that makes all the sense in the world. It's not that we need to get rid of it. My point would be, this is a long soliloquy to get to the point, don't touch the PBE. And if you want to touch it, Washington was still trying to fix it when he got the wrong boats to cross the Delaware. I mean, you know, leave it alone. But build something in parallel that looks nothing like it, that does commercial acquisition for things that are time urgent or attributable. Those are very different concepts, not even built into the notion of PBE. And if you don't understand that those are very distinct and very different things, you keep trying to modify the PBE. It'll never be good for things that need to be acquired now that are good enough, that are going to be obsolete like your iPhone in three years. Oh, what process can we use for that? You're never going to make the PBE do that. And, And this is the big idea. People try to use execution processes for innovation processes. They're not the same. Large organizations that live long lives are ambidextrous, which is a $20 word to say they could chew gum and walk at the same time. They could do execution and innovation. But those are not the same people, not the same processes, not the same organization. Until we recognize that, we're going to keep doing the same thing of trying to modify the execution stuff to do innovation. And you end up with trying to make a dessert topping into a floor wax and vice versa, they look the same, but but they have no relationship to each other.
0: So, if PPBE reform isn't the right answer, and we need larger structural change led by Congress, what does that actually look like?
1: Well, so let me start with whatever I'm going to say is wrong, <laughs> but it's the beginning. You no, know, it's the beginning of a conversation because I'll start with what the hell do do I know? I mean, you know, I spent the, my four years in the Air Force was during Vietnam, so like, you know, I. I think the airplanes still had canvas and biplanes when I was in the military, but I do spend some time and 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 I'll just tell you what I'm thinking. As I said, I think it's wrong, but maybe directionally correct. So think about DOD on the Office of Secretary of Defense, the two most relevant organizations are RNA, the research and engineering and acquisition and sustainment. You know, just imagine if the goal was to use the external commercial innovation ecosystem and private capital as a force multiplier and then use the expertise of primes as integrators advanced technologies and refocus FFRDCs and r and, and, um, and others on areas not covered by commercial tech, by kinetics and energetics and hypersonics, you do two things. I mean, just obvious, you'd split R&E in half, um, keep the current organization focused on the status quo and create a new peer organization in, in r and the Undersecretary of Defense for Commercial Innovation and Private Capital. And they'd re- be responsible for scaling new entrants to the defense industrial base. And it would create incentives for private uh, capital and, uh, and private equity. And, you know, the office, new Office of Strategic Capital is probably a good place to, to start, but, um, but scale. And then the next piece I would do is split a and uh, Bill of Plants Organization. And its goal would be create and buy from new 21st century arsenals, new shipyards, new drone manufacturers, that can make thousands of extremely low-cost detritable systems. Um, and that would be a undersecretary defense for commercial acquisition in 21st century arsenals. And that would say we need to acquire at speed. Um, we need to acquire with commercially-oriented processes. Mike Brown of DIU, before he left, actually it, it was going to be the head of ANS before he got sabotaged, Was actually had a good proposal for that and build where we uh, buy where we can and build where we must and then as i said i keep going back to build 21st century arsenals and and uh, and shipyards and this isn't to abandon our existing ones but if you've been to groton and other places that build existing ships they're about cutting sheet metal and building large industrial systems there's something completely radically different you need in in the 21st century versions that, you know they use 3D printing or carbon fiber or whatever but they're building things at scale and mass um and then finally uh, um as i said i would create a new uh, uh a new service that moves the um, strategic deterrence stuff out of the navy and the air force so the navy and air force could simply focus on what their missions are in acquiring systems and not worrying about this budget battle between You know, the use once things that you never have to use versus the use many times, which we have in the last couple of decades. That's just the start of a conversation. I mean, I I have a, you know, a longer list of uh, oh, coordinate with allies, um, um, you know, and eventually you put different people in charge of those new organizations. The people you want in the existing orgs are the best people we have. It's not that they're doing anything wrong. But you know, very few of them can actually draw you a diagram of how private capital and six hundred billion dollars got deployed last year. How they make money? How to how how on earth has Silicon Valley been building things in 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 years versus decades? How did SpaceX put up three thousand plus satellites in in less than three years? And why does it take the PBE to move that paperwork in the same time across the Pentagon? Um, and again, it's not dumb people or people with malice. It's not. It's just that we haven't focused on – it's now national priority to move with speed and urgency and use external resources as a force multiplier because our adversaries have. And if we're not embarrassed about China doing it, we should be embarrassed by North Korea doing it. We don't have all the
0: answers, and and when I was uh, trying to put this forth in, in the Senate, I, I I told them, I don't have the answers, but I know what the questions are. And so we need to get a, a commission going that talks to all of the smart people out there that can start making recommendations of what are all, what actually needs to change. Um, And I think that the, you know, it it was a shame that they, they went with a much lower tier in my opinion with just the PPBE commission. But I think if we, We can pass the message that, look, we're talking about structural change on the level of Goldwater-Nichols, which completely changed the operational behavior of the Department of Defense. We need that level of change to completely change the capability development behavior of the Department of Defense. That needs to happen. And so
1: and when we need to start with a commission, and then we need to build it. My only hope in this conversation, this short little white paper I wrote, is what's been missing is a high-order playbook. Is what problem are we solving? And, and I want to go all the way back to what I started. We're not solving the PBE problem. We're not solving the X, Y, and Z problem or We're going one level or two levels bigger. And the and, and for me, the analogy was Goldwater Nichols solved reorganizing internal assets. What I'm suggesting is the force multiplier, you know, reorganization would enable the DOD to use the rest of of commercial innovation and, and private capital and commercial innovation tools to scale at the way our adversaries are scaling. And the fallout will be, Brad, that's my point. The fallout will be, A, a different way to acquire different people, different processes that don't threaten the existing ones, but give us a roadmap of how to use resources. We just haven't, we, not only haven't we tapped, we've managed to force away from not wanting to work with the DOD. Once you give Congress that remit, oh, look what we're missing. We're missing this entire piece of national assets. Then all of a sudden, smart people will figure out, oh, yeah, is it a replacement for PBE, or is it this other commercial acquisition stuff? Oh, is it reorganizing R and A&S or do we create a new sort of form of organization? Oh, do we move them to the nuclear deterrent stuff out so they could focus on just conventional stuff or is it something? You know, remember... Goldwater-Nichols started with the head of the Joint Chiefs thinking that we just ought to reorganize the Joint Chiefs. That's how it started. It ended up something much bigger and more interesting. And all I'm suggesting is we need that conversation started in Congress with a uh, bipartisan set of committees that actually start thinking about the big issues here and what the DOD is missing. How do we, in fact, move with alacrity and speed and urgency? How do we, in fact, acquire the right things at the right time, not how do we accelerate moving things from one office to another? That's that's like about 17 layers down. We need to make sure we're moving the right things from the right office in the right time.
0: Many thanks to my special guest and friend, Steve Blank. Be sure to check out what Steve's got going on at steveblank.com. Thanks for listening to the Octagon Podcast. This is Brad Board, your host. Have a great week.